Matthew 12, verses 1 to 21. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answers, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and he, was, he, and he healed all those who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what is spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Thank you so much, Gary. And uh, it would be great to have that passage open in front of you as we look at it today. There's also an outline you can see there on uh, uh, where we're heading, uh, which might be useful for you if you're, uh, you're looking at that as well. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that uh, you're a God who speaks to us. We pray that as uh, we reflect on this, your word today, that you'll speak to our hearts and minds, that you'll enlarge our picture of who Jesus is and why he came into this world and his implications for our life today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Muhammad Ali, you'll see a picture of him on the screen. He was one of the greatest boxers in the history of the world, world heavyweight champion. Just before a fight that he had for the world championship uh, title with Joe Frazier, he was uh, interviewed. This is a couple of days beforehand, and this is what he said. There seems to be some confusion. We're going to clear, clear, clear up this confusion on March 8. We're going to decide 
once for all, who is king? There's not a man alive who can beat me. I'm too smart. I'm too pretty. I am the greatest. I am the king. I should have been a postage stamp because that's the only way anyone could lick me. <laughs> Humble man. Uh, let's go a little more contemporary. Kanye. Uh, Kanye is a pop star. He was thinking about running for president, but I think he forgot to put in his nomination. I think that's what happened. But uh, uh, he was interviewed on television, late night TV, and he was asked how he would describe himself. All right? this, this, this is a mega star. This is what he said. Uh, for me, he said, I'm a creative genius. There's no other way to word it, really. Right? Full of uh, humility. He struggles a little bit with self-confidence, but there you go. Okay. Most of us have been brought up not to brag about ourselves or to boast uh, from when we're very little. Uh, we know that's not a smart thing to do if you want to make friends, to big note yourself. But here's the thing. As you come here to... Matthew chapter 12, Jesus makes extraordinary claims about himself that make people like Ali or Kanye seem positively humble, right? But because uh, we're 21st century people living here in Australia, we're not 1st century Jews living in Palestine, it's easy actually to miss uh, the extraordinary nature, the huge claims that Jesus is making. So what we're going to do is dig into chapter 12, and I think it'll become pretty clear uh, what's going on. So we start off in chapter 12, and it's all about the um, a Sabbath dispute or a Sabbath rest issue. You pick it up, chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, it starts off at that time. Now, it's just a, a connecting phrase that links us back into chapter 11. And if you remember last week, or if you went here last week, in chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says he can give people rest. It's the word for Sabbath, if you like. It's, it's that sort of idea. And it takes us really back to the start of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 2. And God actually rests on the seventh day. Now, it's not that he, he took a holiday and put his feet up. God, God never does that. What we're told in Genesis chapter 2 is that God rested from all his work in creating he didn't do nothing. He just had finished the task of creating. And then from there, he keeps sustaining and upholding the whole universe. Right? The Jewish nation, they kept a Sabbath, uh, a rest day. That was their pattern as the people of God. They downed tools. But the goal of that rest day was always to remember who God was, to remember what he'd done, to remember how blessed they were. Now here in chapter 12, this Sabbath becomes the trigger point for conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees. Look again with me at chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples were hungry and they began to pick some of the heads of grain and to eat them. Now, if you're out Bushwalking, yeah, lovely day, clear of rain today, you go bushwalking, you see some blackberries, you know, growing wild and you pick some and you're doing that this afternoon, you wouldn't even give it a second thought. It is no big deal. But verse 2, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that when Jesus and his disciples turn up, right, 
they're always the good guys. They're always dressed in white. And we always go, hooray, Jesus and his disciples are here. Okay, we cheer. When the Pharisees turn up, they're always dressed in black. And they're bad guys who are always frowning and we boo, right? Jesus, hooray, Pharisees, boo, right? If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that's sort of the way in which it goes. But I want you to remember that the Pharisees were actually the, the sort of fine, upstanding, first-century Rotarians. They, they saw themselves as the good guys. And in so many ways, they were good living. But they had missed the point of the Sabbath. Uh, they'd actually missed the point that this was a day to rejoice in the extraordinary grace of God. But instead, they turned it into a day of mean nitpicking legalism. Apparently, the Pharisees had created over 600 rules that they added to what the Bible said. And over 40 of these rules that they'd added to the Bible related to what you could or couldn't do on this Sabbath day. They just burdened people and loaded people up with obligations so here we have this, this inflammatory situation, right, where uh, you've got this tension point. The disciples had inadvertently done something that the Pharisees were reacting to. What, what, tell me, what's your natural response when you're faced with a fight? You know, some of us are um, a fight people. We engage. You know, it just gets us going. And some of us are flight people. We just want to back off and escape. You know, it just depends on how you're wired, I think. Proverbs 15 verse 1 says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Now, if there's a misunderstanding, you know, you can almost see it in this situation. Sorry, guys. Look, we're just, no harm, no foul. We didn't mean to do it. Come on, disciples, let's move along. You could easily see Jesus saying something like that, couldn't you? But he doesn't. He pours gasoline on the fire, right? He, it's, it really inflames the whole situation with how he engages with it. And he does it by making a series of I am the greatest statements. Let's look at those together. First of all, he talks about the fact that he's greater than King David, verse 3. Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his, his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Right, what he's doing here is taking them back to 1 Samuel chapter 21. And he says to the Pharisees, you might remember in that incident, uh, David and his companions ate the bread that was set apart only for the priests to actually use. He ate it because he and his companions were hungry and that was obviously okay. And you can almost see the cogs ticking over. Um, the Pharisees are saying, well, yeah, the Old Testament law was ignored, but David was the greatest king in the history of Israel. You know, like, I mean, you can imagine, let's say President Biden visited Adelaide, right, and landed at Adelaide Airport. Right? He wouldn't be on a uh, commercial flight and go through all the usual rules. The whole place would be cleared out. He would be on his own jet. They'd download these limousines that were 
tankers. He'd come into the city to a reception at Government House and all the roads would have guards along them and there'd be no red lights. He'd just get the... Right? He'd just be... That'd just be the way he would be treated, OK? Now, I could say, how come that doesn't happen to me? You know, when I landed Adelaide Airport, I never get that treatment, right? But, of course, the answer's obvious, isn't it? I'm not the president, in case you hadn't worked this out, I'm not the president of the United States, you know, and that's why I don't get treated that way. Understand, Jesus is saying he is a king greater than David. He's saying, I am the greatest king ever and I'm here in your presence today. I am the greatest. And he goes on. He says, I'm... I'm actually greater than the temple, just to drive the point home. Verse 5. Haven't you read the, in the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath, and yet they are innocent? It's a simple point. The law permits or even requires the priests to work on the Sabbath. And you can almost see the Pharisees, Jesus. Are you saying you're a priest? And, of course, Jesus says, no, no, actually, I'm greater than a priest. Verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. The priests serve in the temple. He's saying, but I'm greater than the temple. The, the temple represented the very presence of God among his people. Of course, God was never contained or limited by the temple. But at this point, Jesus is saying, I am God present among you. And then, just in case... They haven't worked it out. He goes on. He actually says, I'm greater than the Sabbath. Verse 8, the Son of Man, it's just Jesus' way of talking about himself, is Lord of, of the Sabbath. This is such a huge claim. Jesus says, I stand above the Sabbath. Actually, I'm the very point of the Sabbath because the Sabbath was all about rest. And I'm the one who's come to give you rest. Only God can give rest. That's who I am. Huge claims, right? This is, you know, petrol on the fire, he inflames the whole situation. Not to create a fight, but to make a point. But we all know that uh, words are cheap, don't we? So Muhammad Ali, I read out a quote of his uh, self-proclaimed greatness just before his fight with Joe Frazier, world championship fight. Guess what? He lost. <laughs> Words are cheap. Verse 9. The same day, it's the Sabbath day, Jesus heads into the synagogue and he's confronted by a man with a shriveled hand. He's disabled. Now, we're not sure exactly what's going on with that hand, but clearly it's an irreversible condition. Verse 10. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they, that's the Pharisees, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath. Now, there are two things worth knowing at this point. The first is, it would be extraordinarily unusual for someone with this sort of disability to be in the synagogue to start with. Right, so, get the point. This is a setup for this man to be here. It's a, it's a provocation. And the second thing is, you know, I'd said the Pharisees had lots of rules. One of the rules was that you could heal on the Sabbath if it was a matter of life or death, you're allowed to do that. But otherwise, the Pharisees had deemed that you had to wait till the following day to get healed of things. Okay? Life or death, sure. If not, come back tomorrow. 
That was the rule, okay? Verse 11. Jesus says, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. You get the point, don't you? Jesus turns to these Pharisees and he says, you guys and your rules, here is a man in desperate need of the touch of God and you want me to tell him to come back tomorrow? Really? And you see the heart of the people that he's dealing with at this point. And Jesus, he heals him. How do you reckon that bloke felt? Oh, <laughs> you know, his life was just turned on its head. How do you think the crowd who were there at the synagogue felt at that moment? I mean, they would have been stunned and just amazed at the extraordinary kindness of God to this man. But the Pharisees, look at what they do. They say, gotcha. Verse 14. The Pharisees went out and they plotted how they might kill Jesus. It's a great irony here, isn't there? I mean, you can't work on the Sabbath, but you can plan how to kill somebody. It's just so sad. You can plan how to kill the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who came to push back the ravages of sin in this world, the one who promises to give rest to the weary and broken human beings who are on their last legs. It's just so sad. That's the encounter. So what do we learn from this encounter? It's actually lots of things we could focus our, our time on. We could talk about the, um, the danger of legalism. You know, the, the Pharisees had turned a wonderful day of refreshment and joy into a day of mean-spirited, nitpicking legalism. That was their pattern. But, you know, Christians and churches over the years, we've easily fallen into the same trap, you know, focused on Christianity being what you can't do, the rules around restricting behaviours and making life all about rules and regulations. We can turn into organisations that uh, spot it and stop it clubs. You know, that's, that's the sort of way we can do it. But, you know, our relationship with God is something to be enjoyed. Maybe we've lost, we could focus our time on that. But you know, rather than focusing on us, I actually want to do what this passage does and focus on Jesus and just reflect on the character of Jesus and how that draws us. Jeff Lynn uh, sometimes comes up here and preaches. Many of you will know Jeff. He works on uh, university campuses on North Terrace. And he's often catching up with people to read the Bible who aren't Christians and just sitting down. Often they work through Mark's Gospel or, or Matthew's Gospel. And when they start to meet, Jeff says, as we read through the Bible, I'd love you to answer two questions as we read through. The first question is this. 
what do you think about Jesus? Yeah, who do you think he is, basically, is the question. And he said, then the second question is this one. Do you like him? Who do you think he is? Do you like him? Let's look at who Jesus is, right? Firstly, what he does is he is full of the mercy of God. He is God, full of mercy and grace and truth. Back in uh, verse 7, look at what Jesus says there. If you know what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned the innocent, the innocent being Jesus. Here he's quoting from the Old Testament prophet Hosea. It's chapter 6, verse 6. The people in Hosea's day, the ones that Hosea was speaking to, they were very confident about their standing with God, but all because of what they'd, they'd done, their sacrifices, their keeping of God's law, and they thought God must be pleased with them because they'd done such a good job of doing those sort of things. Jesus, he is full of mercy and grace. He dispenses healing and wholeness to the man with the shriveled hand, forgiveness of sin to sinners, uh, the rest, the relationship with God that's promised. And the Pharisees, they don't see their need for mercy. They're just like the people that Hosea was writing to. They feel they've got their act together and that all God's there to do is to rubber stamp their performance. But if they'd known who Jesus was, they would have fallen on their knees and they would have begged Jesus to forgive them. So I want to ask, do you know the mercy of God that we see in Jesus at this point? Do you understand that? Here are two tests. Uh, the first test is this. I reckon it's the risk as you go on in the Christian life. You can feel like everything is good between you and God, provided you're ticking the boxes of how you're meant to live. You know, when you become a Christian, uh, maybe not for everyone here, but for me when I became a Christian, I was so profoundly aware of the forgiveness that I had and the way I trashed God and yet he was kind to me and the Lord Jesus Christ through, through what he'd done for, for, for me in his son. I want to say that you don't ever move on from that. You don't ever graduate from the mercy and the grace of God. None of us are ever acceptable to God because of what we bring to the table never we're secure with God only because of his mercy never because of our performance okay we just need to keep remembering that the second thing is if you know mercy then you have mercy towards others if you know mercy you have mercy the Pharisees saw a relationship with God uh, as being based on performance, you know, what you do. I think it means as they faced an unbelieving world, they wanted to impose their morality and their rules on other people. And I think it's just as easy for us today to do the same thing as believers, to protest uh, against the loss of... Christian heritage or culture, you know, to think back for those of you who are old enough uh, uh, to, you know, the mid, you know, last century when churches were on the rise and lots of people were in Sunday schools and we were a centre 
uh, hive of activity and you can think about the loss to our culture of those sort of things. Remember the good old days. Where you can complain more contemporarily about the cancel culture that tries to muzzle Christians or to denounce the laws that are being published that we think are contrary to what the Bible says, you know, euthanasia, or you could think of others. And what do unbelieving Australians hear? Here's the message they hear. They're immoral and they need to become moral like we are. Okay, that there's, it's easy. Now, the first statement is true because everyone is, right? Uh, but the reality is that's not the message we have. We're not saying change your morality. We're, we're saying change your God. Don't serve yourself. Serve the Lord of heaven and earth is what we want to say. You see, the test of whether we understand God's grace and mercy is whether we show it to others. Christians are no better than anyone else on the face of the planet. We're forgiven. That's the difference. We're right with God based on what he has done for us. We're beggars with empty hands trying to help others find food. That's where we stand. Jesus is profoundly merciful. It's a wonderful picture. But I want to finish by talking about Jesus' humility. Uh, he is the greatest. He is God. He strides the planet with extraordinary power. I mean, unprecedented power. No one has ever matched this sort of authority ever right, in the history of our world. But he isn't self-promoting. Here in chapter 12, after yet another extraordinary display of power, right, he's at, at this point, chapter 12, he's at the height of his popularity. This is the point at which his agent says, we're going to go on a world-speaking tour, OK? This is the moment to, to take this sort of step. Verse 15. Aware of this, not his agent's plans, but the plans of the Pharisees to kill him, right? Aware of this, he withdrew from that place. Now, you think, well, maybe self-protection? You go on in verse 16. Well, a large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. Right? Mercy, 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 grace. And he warned them not to tell others about him. But it's not, uh, like he's not self-promoting, but it's not, not self-protection. Then you get this extended quote from Isaiah chapter 42, verses uh, 18 to 21. Here is my servant whom I've chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him. And he will proclaim justice to the nations. He won't quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. Till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Now, notice there's no, there's no false humility here. Yeah, Jesus is not, oh, shucks, just got lucky with that last miracle, right? 
There's nothing like that going on. He's not going, oh, yeah, I am God. You know, like it's not that sort of, you know, uh, mock foe sort of, you know, pretension. You see, ultimately his humility is mentioned by... is is actually measured by the way in which he serves other people. That's how you work it out. He has gentle grace, the fragile are cared for. He is full of justice. The world puts their hope in him, but his humility is measured by self-sacrifice. You see, Jesus withdraws at this point because he has a different trajectory in mind, a different goal in mind. He's moving towards Jerusalem. He's moving towards his death on a cross. Nothing's going to interfere with that. That's where he is going. You see, we all deserve the wrath of God for our sin. But Jesus, he serves us by dying on a cross for the sin of the whole world. And you see, there the justice of God is met. There payment for sin is made. And on the basis of that cross, God extends mercy to anyone who puts their trust in Jesus. Going back to Jeff Lynn's questions, who do you think Jesus is? Friends, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He has all authority. He is the greatest. There's no question about that. And he gives rest. Relationship with God. Freely given. Mercifully passed on. That's who he is. And I don't know about you, but I really, really like him. Right? I really, really like him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, this extraordinary picture of of Jesus. And we pray that, uh, just as we read your word, that this is the Jesus who will fill our hearts and our minds with knowledge of who you are, expand our hearts, uh, give us that knowledge of security with you, purely based on what Jesus has done and the rest he provides through his life and his death and his resurrection. Heavenly Father, we pray that we'll keep celebrating uh, the rest that we have, the joy, the freedom, the forgiveness, the hope, the confidence, uh, that we'll just keep delighting in our privileged position of being in a relationship with you because of him. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to hand back to Kerry. I think we, we've got a Q&A coming up after this next song. So if you do have questions about today, then uh, uh, I'll, I'll jump back up and feel free to ask them. Thank